Long History's Random UK Prime Minister of the Week, Prime Minister 41, Winston Churchill, who was Prime Minister from the 10th of May 1940 to the 26th of July 1945, and then from the 26th of October 1951 till the 5th of April 1955. Hello everyone and welcome to Long History. And welcome in particular to the latest episode in our series Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. This is the series where we literally take a Prime Minister at random and then ask a few questions of that Prime Minister, such as what were they like, how did they get into office, what were their main achievements and how did they leave office. And we've got a few of these random UK Prime Ministers of the Week now, so if you want to check them out, I'm sure they're available on your podcast provider. But they and all episodes of Long History are together on our website, longhistory.net. That's long history, all one word. Okay, so we've got an important one here, so let's get going with random UK Prime Minister of the Week, the 41st Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was the best Prime Minister ever. Really, there's no contest, so that's the end of the episode. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Okay, well, now after making such a statement, it is tempting to be somehow revisionist, just to be a little controversial and perhaps to wind a few people up. In researching for this episode, however, it became clear that there's not really even any reason to be revisionist. Churchill was clearly a flawed man. He very much had opinions of the time, and some of them are unpalatable today but he had no pretense at being some sort of perfect historical deity, so if you want to find faults, they're not difficult to spot. However, the key point is that Churchill was also an exceptionally good Prime Minister, particularly if the criteria for an exceptionally good Prime Minister is that you win the Second World War. And that's a very clear reason to be sent to the number one spot, but it's also a very specific criterion a situation that few Prime Ministers have had to face. Churchill not only comes top of the polls about the best Prime Minister ever, but he also comes top in the polls about the best Britain ever. And really, for me at least, that's a more telling statistic, because even if he didn't solely win the Second World War, Churchill is certainly synonymous with that victory. So in a sense, he's a more famous war leader than he is a Prime Minister. And as we've created these profiles about Prime Ministers, it has become clear that being a war leader is often a trump card for any Prime Minister. Churchill, for example, also helped with the house building of the early 1950s. But being efficient at house building, perhaps a more typical responsibility of a Prime Minister, well, it's never going to get you anywhere near the top spot. It's interesting that Churchill had a stab at being both a wartime and a peacetime Prime Minister. And we can see here that being the best Briton is not necessarily the same thing as being best Prime Minister, because Churchill's fame is really only because of his first time as Prime Minister, during the Second World War, whereas his period as a peacetime Prime Minister is much less memorable. Even to the point where it has been argued that the older Churchill specifically wanted the country to have an undramatic period to get its collective breath back after the Second World War. So before we go on, we'll stress that we'll focus on Churchill as a Prime Minister here, which will include wartime and peacetime. We'll ask the same questions that we asked about other Prime Ministers. And in this way, we'll see how much he stands out from the pack when those same questions are asked. In doing so, we'll overlook a lot of Churchill's life. So the first question we like to ask 
is what was he like? Now, perhaps charismatic is the word we could best use. We'll go into Churchill's background later on, but his list of achievements includes being a Nobel Literature Prize winner, a soldier and a historian, as well as being a famous wit. He was clearly a larger-than-life character, domineering, decisive and opinionated, frustrating to some, inspirational to others, and one biography describes him as collegiate, friendly and with a self-preserving ability not to hold grudges. He was married to his wife Clementine for 56 years and had five children, four of whom survived into adulthood. So that's the initial introduction to Winston Churchill, but before we take a look at the man in more depth, we like to step back a little and take a look at the period when he was Prime Minister. So the next question we ask is what was the historical background? Of course, it was the Second World War that dominated Churchill's first time in office, but the post-war 1950s make up his second time in office. When Churchill took up office for the first time, the UK was eight months into the Second World War, and the time when he took up office coincided with the end of what has been called the Phony War, when relatively little action took place during the earliest months of the war. Of course, it's difficult to summarise such years, but here we'll mention just a few of the famous names in the early part of the war. Just after Churchill took up office, Dunkirk took place in May and June 1940, when the British retreated from the continent. The Battle of Britain then began from July that year. Later on in that year, in September, the Blitz began, with many of Britain's cities being attacked from the skies. Later in 1940, however, Hitler changed the focus of his attack and the British had won the Battle of Britain, but the conflict by then was spreading across the whole world. For Churchill's second time in office, beginning in 1951, war was over and a new version of normality had resumed. Of course, however, the consequences of war were monumental, with the UK having fundamentally changed, not least with the creation of the National Health Service and with the loss of India. This was the time when the British Empire was beginning its end. Queen Elizabeth was crowned in 1953, which can be seen as a moment of optimism, even during that time of rationing and austerity. In 1940, the population of the UK was 46 million. In 1951, it was 50.3 million. These were both, however, periods of significant change. If we look at a city such as Portsmouth, for example a key port on the south coast, we see that during the Second World War it was subject to 67 air raids, destroying over 6,500 houses and causing almost 1,000 deaths. During Churchill's second time in office, however, more fundamental changes were taking place in the city. Traditional industries were disappearing, with shipbuilding jobs beginning their collapse from more than 45% of the workforce in 1951, to below 15% in the late 60s. Old industries were in decline and jobs were moving abroad. The empire, in which Portsmouth played an important role, was also ending. Perhaps there was a sense that the UK had lost its role as such. Now it needed a new role. So we've looked at the UK. Now we like to look across the water and see what was happening in the United States at the time. The President of the US during the Second World War was F.D. Roosevelt, the only US President to have served more than eight years in office. 
His successor, Harry S. Truman, was in the final year of his time in office when Churchill took up the job for the second time, followed by Dwight D. Eisenhower's first years in office. So now before we get back to Churchill himself, we like to take a look at who could vote when this Prime Minister came into office. In this way we can look at the development of democracy over time in the UK. And interestingly, however, no one voted for Churchill to become Prime Minister the first time he entered office, nor had anyone voted for his predecessor Neville Chamberlain. And the first election to take place during Churchill's tenure in 1945 would actually oust him from office. So it wasn't until his second term in office in 1951 when Churchill was actually voted in by the people as Prime Minister. Even then, though, it's surprising and worth noting that he won because he gained the most seats, but actually lost the popular vote. In that election, 13.7 million people voted for Churchill, but 13.9 million voted for the outgoing Prime Minister Clement Attlee. The only difference between who could vote today and in those days in the meantime was that the voting age in 1951 was 21, whereas it's 18 today. Okay, so back to Churchill himself, and the next question we like to ask is what was his background? Churchill's father was English and his mother was American. He was born in November 1874 into an aristocratic family in a palace, Blenheim Palace to be exact. His father was a lord and a member of parliament himself, and his paternal grandfather was the Duke of Marlborough. Churchill's mother in the meantime was Jenny Jerome herself from a wealthy family. Within this environment, Churchill stands out because he didn't go to one of the classic British universities, however, he did go to an establishment school, being one of seven Prime Ministers to go to Harrow. He entered the Military Academy Sandhurst in 1893. During his early adulthood, often for military purposes, he travelled the world, beginning his writing career by writing about what he saw during his military expeditions. His political career began when he was chosen to stand in the 1899 election as a candidate for Oldham in Lancashire. He lost that time, but would win narrowly as a result of the October 1900 election. He was 25 at the time and had stood as a Conservative candidate. Churchill soon flipped sides, however, finding that he agreed more with the Liberals during his early years in Parliament. He became a Liberal MP in 1904, allowing him to join the Liberal governments of that time, beginning in 1905 with Henry Campbell Bannerman. In November 1915, he gave up his post in government and entered the military, but he had gone back into government by 1917, becoming the Minister of Munitions. Churchill lost his seat in the 1922 general election, but he switched once again to the Conservative Party, arguing that the Liberals were no longer an electoral force, and that the Socialist Labour Party was the new opposition. He stood for the Conservatives in the 1924 election, this time for Epping. His so-called wilderness years began in 1929 when the Conservative Party lost power to the Labour Party. Churchill held on to his seat but was no longer in government, a situation which would remain until 1939. So there's a lot to fit in when we discuss Churchill's early life, but the next question we like to ask is how did he become Prime Minister? When Churchill took over the leadership of Germany in 1933, 
Churchill began to warn of the dangers of the new regime in Germany. Neville Chamberlain became Prime Minister in 1937, with the threat of war looming. However, as Chamberlain tried to come to an agreement with Hitler for peace, Churchill warned that appeasement with such a man was not possible. When war broke out on September 3, 1939, Churchill finally returned to government when Chamberlain appointed him First Lord of the Admiralty. The first few months of the so-called phony war saw a lack of progress, and Chamberlain was already seen as a Prime Minister tarnished by his attempts at appeasement. When Germany invaded the Netherlands, Luxembourg and Belgium on May 10th 1940, Chamberlain's authority, which was already under question, disappeared, with Churchill being put forward as the logical replacement. And let's not forget the second time Churchill became Prime Minister. In 1951, Clem Attlee had been Prime Minister for six years. He had set up the National Health Service, but after that initial reforming zeal, the momentum had gone, not least when he only narrowly won an election in 1950. In a risky move, due to a split in the government, Attlee called for another general election in 1951, in the hope of achieving a bigger majority. It's not the only time a Prime Minister has taken such a risk to gain more authority. However, in this case, he lost that election, Churchill winning more seats even though the Labour Party gained the most votes, as we've said. Churchill was in power once again, although by this time he was already well into his 70s and his vocation as a wartime Prime Minister was not quite the same as the job of a peacetime Prime Minister. So, Churchill is in office and what were his biggest achievements as Prime Minister? Now, of course, much has been written about Churchill's time as a Prime Minister during the Second World War. And what was it that made him so exceptional? Well, making it quite clear that I'm in no way an expert on this subject, it seems that Churchill could draw on his eclectic knowledge and long experience, both with regards to the military and politics. He worked alongside the other parties during the war, appreciating the importance of keeping everyone on side but also being able to be decisive when it was needed. His oratory, of course, was a key part of that, with Churchill seeming very happy to take the limelight and to be seen as much as a celebrity in today's terms as a politician. The achievements of Churchill's peacetime premiership don't stand out quite so much. He was Prime Minister as Queen Elizabeth was crowned, but times were changing with the decline of the British Empire having been exacerbated by the war. It's interesting that this is the first Prime Minister I have any personal connection with, although it's only indirect, in that a relative of mine who was a child in the early 1950s remembers Winston Churchill being Prime Minister and very much remembers him as an old man who just wouldn't move on. So, the inevitable next question is how and why did Winston Churchill stop being Prime Minister? Well, we've already mentioned it, it's one of the strange quirks of history that as soon as the population of the UK was given an opportunity to vote for Churchill and thank him for winning the war, they did the opposite, voting him out of office. And this is, of course, one of those much-debated issues about the Second World War. And so it's difficult to summarise it here, but here's the best attempt. And the main issue seems to have been that his rival, Clement Attlee, was promising something that the Conservatives were only reluctantly espousing. Reform. During the war, a number of recommendations had been put forward for the future of the country, 
including the creation of a national health service. Clement Attlee and the Labour Party wholeheartedly supported this change. Churchill, in the meantime, had won the war, but he was essentially a conservative figure with a small c. In a way, he represented a past that the country swiftly wanted to leave behind. Churchill's second period in office in the meantime began when he was 77, and Churchill suffered from ill health, having a serious stroke in 1953, and although he recovered from that stroke, by that time he was clinging on to office, and he resigned from office in 1955 to be replaced by Anthony Eden. So, the last question we ask of every Prime Minister we cover on Random UK Prime Minister of the Week is why should we remember him? And more often than not, we have to come up with some superlative for people who have more or less already been forgotten, but of course that's not the case for Winston Churchill. In being, according to that poll, the best Briton ever, we can see that in a way he surpasses the role of Prime Minister. One thing we've not discussed here, however, is Winston Churchill's gift at oratory. Now, I'm not going to embarrass myself by reading any of his speeches out, I'm sure they won't be difficult to find if you look them up for yourselves, but I thought I'd just give a summary of some of the most famous speeches worth looking up. In chronological order. On the 13th of May 1940, Winston Churchill gave his inaugural speech to the Houses of Parliament as Prime Minister. This was known as the Blood, Toil, Tears and Sweat speech. Just over two weeks later, on the 4th of June 1940, Churchill gave a speech in response to the Dunkirk evacuation when the threat of a Nazi invasion was imminent. This speech has the famous line, We shall fight on the beaches. And two weeks on from that, on the 18th of June 1940, when France had fallen to the Nazis, Churchill gave another stirring speech, the famous phrase being, This was their finest hour. Then, on the 20th of August 1940, about two months later, was the Battle of Britain speech where he paid tribute to fighter pilots. This involved the phrase, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And just a final one was the speech he gave after the Second World War, when he coined the phrase Iron Curtain, announcing the beginning of the Cold War. And that speech took part on the 5th of March 1946. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Long History's Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. As always, I like to stress that this is just a summary, the briefest summary possible, and of course it's very difficult to summarise the life of someone like Winston Churchill. So as always, please just see this as a starting point to do your own research on the points you're interested in. I hope you've enjoyed my best attempt at creating such a summary, and if you have, please do give it a like, and share it with any like-minded people. Don't forget there's lots of episodes of Random UK Prime Minister of the Week to explore now on Long History, either on your podcast provider or on longhistory.net. Thanks again for listening. This has been Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. Number 41, Winston Churchill. Goodbye.